So interestingly enough, when your first book came out, I actually interviewed you on The Dumbest Generation, uh, which at the time I thought was one of the most interesting books published that year. And I, and I believe I compared it at the time uh, to a follow-up to Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. And this, your latest book, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, is, is kind of terrifying, and even if possible, more terrifying than the, per- the, the, the first one, because it basically confirms your previous thesis, but things are, if anything, worse than you thought they'd be. So what made you want to write uh, such a depressing follow-up book? <laughs> well, Jonathan, it, it is. It is maintaining the warning. Because, you know, in 2008, when you looked at the, the dumbest generation, these 15-year-olds on their phones and they, their iPods, and they were getting into Facebook, and Twitter had just come out, and Instagram was coming, and walking around with 250 pictures of yourself in your pockets, there, there was almost, a, you, you know, you could worry, but there was also something a little amusing or silly about the whole thing. Well, now they're 30 years old. The stakes are a little higher for, for what they think what they feel. And my argument in 2008 was these letting these kids dive into their screens, sink into youth culture and peer pressure all the time, all night long, seven days a week, was bad for their intellectual and emotional development because we weren't putting adult pressure on them. We weren't making sure that they got a little exposure to some good books, some history, politics, religion, and good art, good music, uh, some re- re- read a few good novels, okay? Uh, they didn't get that. And what we are seeing now, when we look at 30-year-olds in America today, is really the fruits of that lack of a good, solid intellectual formation. These 30-year-old millennials, they were spoken of as optimistic and liberal and progressive, and they work hard and they were going to bring America into the 21st century. They're going to be the most informed generation in history. They, they, they voted in big numbers. They really helped Obama win in 2008. They went more than two to one for Obama. Uh, they, they were going to blow old people away with their skills and knowledge. They had all the world at their fingertips with, with Google and, and the web. But that isn't what's happened. Uh, when we look at them now, the survey data, I rec- a lot, include a lot of this in this book, although you don't need to. Everyone knows this. They're not that happy. They, rates of depression and anxiety, narcissism are up. Suicide is up. They're not getting married and having kids, which is a sign of pessimism about the future. They're still piling into houses with four buddies trying to replicate the patterns of adolescence job dissatisfaction, very high. And when we look at social attitudes, they used to be the most tolerant generation ever, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or actually more highly on mistrust of others, distrust, active distrust of others. They are suspicious and they have high rates of vindictiveness. They feel vengeful toward people. They have a strong feeling of betrayal. This, I take, is a sign of what didn't happen 15 years ago. A lot of these responses are due to the normal tribulations of adulthood, but they don't have the tools. They lived in youth culture so much. Youth culture doesn't give you the equipment to handle, you know, uh, taxes. And they, they went ape when Donald Trump was elected in 2016. You want to say 
you're in you're in a political world. Do you think you get to win every time? Do you think Barack Obama is going to be president forever or someone like him? Come on, wake up. Does he get, get real? But they can't. And that's John, John. That is why they're bitter. They are angry. They're, they're getting They're marching. They're looking for causes to express their right, Black right. Lives Matter, Antifa, you know, anything to give an outlet for the disappointment. Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. No, that's it, that's it's really interesting because I am of the generation you refer to. I'm 33 years old. Uh, the, the year your book, The Dumbest Generation, came out was the year I got Facebook. And what was really interesting is, is that at the time, and still to a degree now by the particularly delusional who think, uh, you know, Zuckerberg's metaverse is a good idea, there was this idea that social media didn't replace any fundamental life experiences, but augmented and enhanced them, right? So these networks allow you uh, to have a, a, a more vibrant social life. You can keep in touch with more people. You can keep in touch with relatives overseas. You know, Instagram allows you to follow along with other people's lives. But to what extent has this always been an intentional delusion? Because J.D. Vance puts it really well. He says, when you've got neuroscientists getting paid half a million bucks a year to hook your kids on a platform in order to increase the ad revenue of major corporations, uh, this, this was always a lie. And this is obviously true. You look at the rates of ADHD and things like that going up. And the conservative response is to say, you know, we're just suppressing boys for being boys. Another response is that you've got kids that have had their frontal cortex torqued by an enormous amount of material before they could even cognitively function and have had their brains shaped by like alternative universes emanating out of screens when they should be kicking a ball around or playing with the cat. So to what extent, to what extent are these things designed to do what they have done? Well, it's, it's, it's very significant that you, you mentioned this factor. Uh, the argument is always li- that, that we make against the tools. So, oh, you're a Luddite. You're just an old grump, a grouch. You're a get off my lawn type. And boy, I, I've heard that for years. And my response now is uh, really what, what you mentioned, J.D. Vonsey. Listen, the Silicon Valley people who designed all these programs and tools and devices, do you know that they keep them away from their own kids? Do you know that they send their kids to low-tech schools like the Waldorf schools there in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area? Do you know Steve Jobs famously kept these his own kids away from the tools? And yes, they did hire, they do hire psychologists, neuroscientists, experts in the sciences of addiction and attention. They help them design the tools. Yes. They want, from the start, they want addicts. They want nonstop attention because that's how they make so much money. And boy, are they piling it in. This all was deliberate. And the people, we don't have to make this argument. We can let the Silicon Valley people make the argument. And I do quote a lot of them. You know, the old editor of Wired Magazine talked about these games as getting into the pleasure centers of the brain the way cocaine, heroin does. Same thing. And it was, right, it was deliberate. This is how they become so phenomenally successful. 
Now, one of the things that kind of depresses me the most about these scenarios is the extent to which a lot of the damage that's been done and is currently uh, unfolding seems to me to be hard to fix. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I had uh, I was I was sick a couple of months ago. Um, I had one. I had I had COVID, so I had to. I had to lay low for a little bit and I was like, I'm going to check out some of these new app platforms, you know, like, you know, TikTok and these, and these platforms that have like the 10 second videos just to see sort of what's going on. Because, because as a millennial TikTok, et cetera, came after my time and I'm married with kids. So I have no desire to pile more social media platforms onto my life. And it was unbelievable to, to, to realize how addictive they can be. Cause you can go from, you know, uh, you know, a 10 second clip of, of the top of Mount Everest, you can go through wildlife, you can like, no matter what you're interested in, it's there, right? Anything from, from uh, wild dirt bike tricks to, to extreme sports, to nature scenes, to like, you know, a drone drone shot of the most gorgeous cathedral. It doesn't matter what you like, it's there and you can flip forever. And I realized after about 45 minutes that I had just flipped through all of these videos without even realizing time passing because my brain was getting hit after hit after hit of dopamine. And how, how does somebody who's been brought up like that from a very young age, let's say five, six, seven years old, you know, on these platforms, watching these videos, how do you calm their brain down enough? How do you rewire it enough so that they can actually enjoy, let's say the unabridged version, let's just say of Heidi or of Anne of Green Gables, where whole chapters unfold, where very little happens, you know, except for people thinking, like it almost seems to me that that these kids have been in some ways ruined for the things that hundreds of years of previous generations of children enjoyed. Or am I too pessimistic? You're not too pessimistic. You're, you're exactly right. The overstimulation really does operate at at a you know biochemical level on on the kids. And again, that's deliberate. Boy, if you can get them on that level, you got them forever. And if you look at a website like LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn is always offering you more connections. And what they do is they, they on the page, they say that they suggest connections to you by showing a picture, pictures of people. And as you, you can keep scrolling down, Jonathan, you can scroll forever. And they, and they tempt you with these pictures by pulling people who might have some connection with your history, like someone who went to the same, worked at the same place. You did went to the same school that you did. A friend of one of your existing connections who has a lot of contact with with that with that other person, and and it's a real draw because it it, it goes after your sort of basic life curiosity, okay. And and it's got the the way it's designed, it it feeds it to you in little pieces. It doesn't give you the whole thing at once and let you scan. No, it it it's timed to your to your perception. This is very clever. And I, I don't know how, I, I, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I don't know how we can fight it. We can't in any large way. I mean, we, we, we only reach our own kids and in our own worlds. And, and the thing is that we have to convince the kids, young people, 30-year-olds, this is not good for you. This isn't my opinion about something. This isn't my values, my my old boomer attitudes. This is about you. It's not good for you. And you know that it's not good 
for you. You know you wasted all afternoon doing wasting your time on, on a video game. And they don't feel good. It doesn't make them feel good. You, you watch a kid get off of three hours on a video game. He's kind of sullen. He feels a little depleted. Yeah, or if you take a take a screen away from a three-year-old, it's like taking the ring away from Gollum, right? Like it's obviously doing something to them that that is is profoundly unhealthy. And I can feel this myself. Like I dodged the social media bullet to an extent because you know I didn't get any social media till I was halfway through university. At which point I'd spent a childhood playing outdoors and reading books and all those sorts of things, so I had the foundation. But for me, like I'm a I'm a political junkie, and there's a reason junkie is part of that word. You know, something happens, and I can get the hot takes from you know 50 people I respect in five seconds on Twitter, and I'm tempted to do that. Right? It's like, oh, and now here's Rodria Ross Duthit and 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 you know Chad Pecknold all think something different. This is really interesting, and I can go down the rabbit hole, uh, and then maybe not read one of their long books in which I actually engage with their ideas rather than their hot takes. So if a guy in his 30s you know, who's married and has kids and actually enjoys reading, has a hard time moderating his usage. What chance do the kids really have, actually? Well, here's what we would say, Jonathan. When we look at the 30-year-olds, they're angry. They're bitter. What we do is look at that and say, you know, this hasn't done it for them. This screen-addicted social media life hasn't made them happy. And we realize they do want something more. They do want to get more meaning and value into their lives, more purpose. And I think that's where we might see an opportunity. Because when, when, when you've got some Ivy League, some Ivy League student, and she's white, she grew up in affluence, but she's out there marching. She's gone through New York City and she joined a march and she broke some windows. This actually was a real case. Her parents are architects. They have a place on the Upper East Side. They also have a place out in Connecticut. They've done so well, but she's, she's angry. What does she have to be angry about? Well, she has found something she couldn't find elsewhere in marching against racism or marching, marching against climate deniers or, or whatever the cause may be, even though those things really have nothing to do with her and her life. They're not connected to her. She doesn't, she's not involved in, in any of these things, but it's a place for her to commit to something meaningful something bigger than herself. It gives her a transcendent horizon, a future, a world without racism, a place where everyone can be happy. And all we have to do is get rid of the bad people and express our dismay and things will get better. These are false gods, but it does show a desire for some kind of moral meaning in their lives that all the pictures and Instagram and all the friends uh, online and, and, and Twitter don't give them. And we, we, we've got we've to hit that. I, I have at the end of the book, the story of Malcolm X in prison. 
and his his conversion. It's actually one of the great conversion narratives in all of American history. He goes into prison. He's a thug. Okay, he's a he's a, a, a slimy thief who cares about no one. Every other word out of his mouth is the f word. He doesn't. He'll 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 beat the hell out of someone. He he lives on the streets, and he's a tough guy, and he's dangerous, and he has no vision for the future. He goes into prison, and I, I I'll 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 leave it to readers if you, if you want to talk more about that. He comes out of that place, Malcolm X, who is actually soft-spoken. You see him in interviews. He doesn't yell. He doesn't get wild. He makes solid, calm arguments. He wears a coat and tie. His speech is precise in its diction and grammar, and he loves reading. He reads, reads, reads all the time. He loves books, and he talks about how much he loves books, and he loves history and literature. He reads in prison so much that he, that he ruins his eyes. He didn't wear glasses. We, we see him in glasses. He didn't wear glasses before. His vision was I did perfect. not know that. His vision was perfect. He read so much. He would read at night by the hall light coming into his cell through the window. He copied out the dictionary by hand, word for word, because he said, I try to read books and I can't understand them because I don't know the word. So he started with the dictionary. And it all happened because he encountered a man, an older man in prison, who spoke well, softly. He had knowledge and other people respected him. He was a black man. The white guards respected him and listened to him, and Malcolm X saw this is a man of power and dignity who cares about something more, something better than the street hustle that I've been doing, and he's impressed, and it changes him, and he sets out on a court. He discovers the nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad. Now, I think that's a wacky religion, but it is a worldview. It gave him meaning and purpose. It explained things to him that he didn't understand before. And he was curious. You know, the millennials, 30-year-olds, they don't want to talk, Jonathan. They don't want to debate. They know what's right and wrong. And they get upset when they encounter a contrary opinion. Malcolm X goes on the news shows. He doesn't get upset with people. He knows they, they, they don't like him or that they disagree with him. But he listens. And you can see He's looking at them and trying to figure out what's going on in their heads. He's genuinely curious what makes these people think this way and talk this way. The, the millennials, they shut down. You, 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 you know, Don, a Donald Trump supporter gives them conniptions. They don't know what to do about that. Yeah. So to what extent is, is part of, of this problem is that parents have given their kids everything but meaning and given their children access like children can have everything except return to the traditions of their ancestors in some ways they've been denied this cultural heritage right. and been given all this consumerist junk that has replaced it and not until it was air quotes too late because it's never too late while there's life 
um, did they realize that the thing that they hadn't been given was so much more important than the thing, the things that they had? I think that that's the, that's the outcome, what you described. We, we, we turned them into little media consumers. We let them go with it. And we didn't give them, what do you say, traditions, the wisdom and beauty of their ancestors. Um, we, we fed them movies like these stupid Marvel superhero movies. I mean, I was sitting next to someone on a plane a while back, He's a 40-year-old guy. He's watching, his, his eyes are fixed on this screen showing these ridiculous <laughs> juvenile scenes. I mean, that, it's fine for 15-year-olds, but my goodness, you're, you're a grown man. It's, it's time to, to put away childish things. Uh, but this is, what we, this is what we gave the kids. Uh, bad, this awful music that, that, that people play, uh, blasting it with their windows down as they drive through neighborhoods. You know, I said one, uh, you know, one, one, one guy pulls up, he's blasting his awful music. And I, I said to him, I actually looked at him and he looked at me and I said, you know, if you played Beethoven at that volume in your neighborhood, you'd be a legend. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he looked at me like you're some kind of a nut or something. <laughs> and drove, and drove. But it's true. It's yeah. True. You know. Uh, what extent, so you've been a professor for, for many years. Has is, is it obvious to you the extent to which which your students ha- have been impacted? And and was there a point at which you noticed a shift to occurring? You know, Jonathan, when I started teaching, uh, you know, in 1990 at Emory University, uh, you always had in the English major, you had these bookish kids. They, they weren't always the, 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 the top grade students, but they might be a little offbeat, but they love to read. If you mentioned an author in class who wasn't on the syllabus, uh, those students would go look up that author, maybe check out the book. They were readers. They lived with, with books. You can tell. Jonathan, that student's gone. It, it, it started happening really during the aughts when I saw things like the library being transformed from a book repository into an information center. Uh, when everyone started walking around with phones, you know, between classes on the quad, check that phone, see if there are any messages uh, out there. You know, 2005 to 2010, I think you saw a real transformation in that time. And that is when the tools, you know, in the nineties, the tools uh, were were actually quite different from what they were by, by 2006, 2007. Uh, They entered people's leisure lives like crazy in those years. And they, and they hit the kids very hard so that I think that by, by 2010, you know, like the, the humanities, they, they were they were a different thing because the students were were different. They didn't come into college in love with Charles Dickens and Jane Austen because they had a great great English teachers, right? Right. So yeah. Get that love. It just it's just not there. And what 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 I find is that even even the visual arts. You know, when I was in college, this is. This was way before your time. You know, in 1980, I'm at UCLA in Los Angeles. I know, I know this is a movie place, but foreign films were cool. 
there were all these revival houses, as they were called. Uh, well, not too many, three or four of them, uh, not far from the UCLA campus and the UCLA as well, where they would show old films. They'd have an Orson Welles or Alfred Hitchcock or Federico Fellini film festival, Ingemar Bergman. And you'd go watch these old films, Wild Strawberries, Bergman's great film from 1957. And it was cool. This is what young people were supposed to do. You know, Martin Scorsese last year had this reminiscence of what Manhattan was like in the early 60s for film students, because when Fellini brought out a new film like Otto e Mezzo, Eight and a Half, it was an event for all these kids. You know, it was almost the same thing in the 70s when I'm in high school and the new Zeppelin album is out. And it was an event and, and the album was, was a bigger thing. It was almost like a, uh, a novel, you know, the next novel by, by, by someone so coming out. But now what the web did is it accelerated their consumptions so much. It, it made it, again, so adolescent. You know, we, we thought that Led Zeppelin's, you know, Led Zeppelin's eighth album wasn't a reinforcement of adolescence. That, that's not how we looked at it. It didn't, it didn't give us self-esteem. We thought it was cool. <laughs> and and it, it was sort of aspirational. You know, we were, we were learning things because what Zeppelin did on, on, this, on this next album was a development. You know, it was that, that, that's how we, we, we looked at it as, as sort of a, a growth for us, uh, a formation. That's how I looked at foreign films. Wow. But you, you, you bring up a really interesting point there, too, because Mary Aberstadt, who we've had on a couple of times in her book, Primal Screams, points out that if you listen to the music uh, of the millennial generation, it, it, it basically affirms the thesis you lay in your book, which is they had everything and nobody's happy. And, and even stranger now, in terms of being trapped in adolescence, you have these singers that are now in their early 40s who are still talking about like adolescent feelings. They're still talking about puppy love. They're still talking about one night stands. They're still talking about getting drunk. It's the same stuff as 20 years ago. And it, it shouldn't be too much. You know, if, if the, the great writers, uh, their last works had been, has been, had been the same as their first works, skipping Tolstoy's resurrection uh, and the more political works of some of the, some of those authors, uh, you, you'd, you'd be justifiably disappointed, but there does seem to be this sort of um, constant adolescence. And is the social media have perhaps something to do with that because social media in many ways kind of traps you in the tyranny of the present. There's always something new and it moves so quickly. You never have time to really engage with or absorb what you've seen. And I think accelerating consumption like that is, is deliberate. On, on the part of the purveyors of all of this stuff. I mean, book a book is a slow consumption, right? You go buy a paperback book. You can get them, you know, go to a used bookstore, you buy it for 25 cents. And now you've got your, you've got a few hours of entertainment. That's not very good for the, for the producers, um, is it? And so also, if you let p- 
people be exposed to the greater things, you're going to improve their taste. You're going to make them a little more critical, a little more judgmental because they're going to acquire standards for the present. And that's going to make them filter out a lot of junk. So wh- why, do, why do people think that Ta-Nehisi Coates is a serious intellectual? You know, the next James Baldwin. <laughs> the yeah. only reason they think that is because they haven't read James Baldwin. The only reason they think that is they don't have a reservoir of great 20th century intellectuals like the New York intellectuals, Irving Kristol and, and, and Irving Howe. Uh, on the right and the left, they don't have those figures in their head because those figures would serve as yardsticks. Right, right. We measure the president. Why did they think Marvel movies are great? Because they haven't seen Citizen Kane or Vertigo or, or you know, some of the, you know, John Ford's better films. They haven't but what, what, they to what think, degree no. have they lost the discernment to understand those things you talk about? Because I know, I know young kids who've read To Kill a Mockingbird and don't get why it's good. And it makes me feel like I'm from a different planet. And it's almost like have, have their brains been transformed too much by technology to, to allow them to enjoy those same things. Because, you know, you can always introduce people to things. People can always change. People can always break out of habits. So there's always that. But the thing that I'm scared of the most, I think, is that people have lost the ability to ever enjoy great expectations or to kill a mockingbird or, you know, something Herculean. Um, Yeah. What what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, John, I've actually lowered my my expectations on that, the, the classic reading. Uh, I mean, I, I'll take uh, a kid who reads a lot of good detective novels. I'll take that. Uh, and some of them are very good, you know, genre fiction. Someone, you know, really good science fiction or, uh, you, you know, murder mysteries or, or something. Those as long as you're reading books, I mean, I used to be all classics, you know, we got, we got to elevate, elevate, but given the world, given the real enemy here, and that is the screen, then uh, I'd love to take my son to the library and let him pile up uh, a bunch of books about, you know, rock and roll, you know, he's a cellist, but now he's getting into the electric guitar. Fine. Okay. Let's read about about uh you know let's get books about pink floyd oh brother but but you know i'll go with it okay okay i liked pink floyd when i when i was 18 um uh that but but i i it's very hard to to get them to slow down to put that damn phone away because you and i are fighting a multi-billion, billion-dollar industry. We are fighting a whole juggernaut of, as we said, scientists and capitalists and engineers and marketers and the vile Tim Cook and other, other Silicon Valley leaders who are making a killing uh, off, of, off of precisely what we're trying to curb 
So, so looking looking uh, towards a bit of optimism, and it's interesting because I would say that there are more reasons for optimism now uh, than there were five years ago. So this this applies to the the era of digital pornography, where you now have uh, a growing consensus in, in in secular circles that pornography is incredibly dangerous. You know, from the Scandinavian countries to Australia to, to the U.S., there's this recognition that this is really poisoning a generation of kids and something must be done. Now, it's not being done yet, uh, but but there's admissions being made by people from whom you'd never expect to hear them. And then the same thing is true with social media. I think it was Jonathan Haidt who advocated limits on Instagram for kids based on the impact on on, on, the, on, on mental health for young girls a couple of weeks ago and in, 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 no, it was a couple of months ago in, in a kind of mainstream publication, you're having candidates like JD Vance that are basically running against social media on social media. And we interviewed him a little while back and he basically says, well, what kind of world do we want? Um, do we want our children to be able to function in those worlds? It's up to us to go to war against those who are essentially making war on our children's minds by attempting to monetize them uh, as people. So I, I know that you have some optimistic stories uh, as well. Where would you would you say that you're more optimistic or less than you were in 2008 when the first book came out? Because your thesis has been confirmed, but I would also say your thesis is probably far more widely shared now than it was when your initial book came out. You know, when the initial book came out, part of the uh, luck I had in the timing was that there were all these cheerleaders for for social media and and screens among the intellectual and academic class, even. I mean, I spoke on on 50 college campuses and I would often be criticized by by people on the panel. Oh, this is just, you know, moral panic. And, you know, they said the same thing about Elvis and comic books, blah, blah, blah. And my my response was, you know, you're the ones who are talking about this digital advent as a radical revolution, as a huge change in human behavior. And now you're saying it's no big deal? Uh, wow. Um, but uh, I and others, some people, uh, Nicholas Carr and Maggie Jackson, we had books come out warning of this. And I remember the, the hosts of, uh, oh gosh, was it... Uh, was it PBS Frontline or Nova? I can't remember which. The producers called me and they had done a documentary on Digital Nation, the young people and their innovative, extraordinary activities online, the things that they were doing. And, and the producer, they said to me on the phone, you know, we, we, we did this. And I said, yeah, I know, I know. And, and they said, but then we read your book and it was a great big tall glass of ice water for us. And we want to do a follow-up on the problems of the, the digital advent for young people. So I, I, I applaud them. They, they did it as a debate. Uh, and I was, I was one, of the, one of the many uh, in, in the debate, some critical, some positive about this whole digital age stuff. But I think we, we did help turn the tide and simply people started seeing, boy, this stuff is really swamping our kids. And, and the porn stuff, I, I don't even know what to say about it. I mean, when, when I was 15 years old, if some kid got a hold of his father's Playboy magazine, we would turn the pages and look at it. And go, oh, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You know, it was it was it was uh, powerful. Now, 15 year old boys, they've seen everything. They that there's nothing that they haven't seen. No sexual acts on, online. 
have have been barred to them. And we we've we've gotta we've gotta understand that they don't they can't handle uh, the, these kinds of of things. They they don't know what to do with it. And and I think even yeah even the liberals are are realizing we we gotta hold off. You know we 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 gotta wait wait until these people are grown up. Um, but I I don't know what I don't know if if they're really doing something about it or or not. I think that maybe we can say, Jonathan, that the optimism is that the signs of deterioration are so strong now. For instance, reading scores are at their lowest levels since the early 70s, in spite of all the money that has been poured. Yeah, wow, wow. And I, I, I attribute that to, uh, there are a few causes, but one of the most definitely is all that screen time. Because, you know, you remember, Jonathan, back, you know, in the old days, the digital gap in the 90s, they were worried, you know, the rich kids, they're going to be online, they're going to have the tools, they're going to have all the resources that the web has provided, and the poor kids won't, and it's going to aggravate the educational achievement gap. And we've got to do something about it. And, and there were laws passed, and, and initiatives started to get more poor kids access to the web. And, and there are people still talking about this, like, like the head of PISA, the international testing, uh, who foolishly still pushes all of this because what, what I said about Silicon Valley actually applies to upper income. There is a new digital gap. Poor kids actually spend more time with tools online on social media than rich kids do. More and more upper income parents, professional parents are keeping their kids away from the tools at home and that this is perfectly correlated with academic achievement, with reading scores. Kids who spend less time online have better reading scores. Kids who do more leisure reading, book reading in off hours, they have higher reading scores than, than poor kids and low reader kids do. Low-income kids spend more time on TV, adding TV to all the social media time. So we, we, we are seeing that all the promises of technology as an intellectual benefit for the young, on the contrary, it's not working out that way. Final question, just to give uh, listeners who are feeling mildly suicidal some uh, some some hopeful uh, and and more more importantly practical things to do. So, for the parents who are listening, and there's quite a few parents who listen, um, what kind of advice would you give them with regards to technology, devices, screens, and their children? Okay, here here's the silver lining for you, Jonathan. Parents, if your kids spend more time with books, know a little bit of politics history, when they get, when their kids go to college, when they go to the workplace, it will show. The more young people get tied to their phones like Linus in his security blanket, uh, the better your non-screen adult kids will come off. It will show. Look, I, I mean, I, I, I taught freshmen for, for many, many years. It was very clear to me for the first few weeks 
which kids led a good verbal life, reading and writing, and which kids didn't. It was obvious. And since reading, which is very well correlated to writing, since we know how important reading and writing are to every college major, every, every workplace, every white collar workplace job, you've got, you've got an opportunity here. Your kids will look so much better in comparison to all the other kids who are on their phones. Even, when, even in the airport, a 15-year-old reading a book stands out so much from all those other 15-year-olds who have the phones out. They're all on their phones. If you're reading a book, you're special, all right? You're different. You want, if you want your kids to excel in, in, in the right ways, this, this right here is a, a perfect occasion. It's very good now uh, because it's a competitive world, right? The pathways of success are competitive. College, getting into college, getting into the graduate schools, uh, getting into the, the, in, the good internships, you know, the summer programs, and then jobs or, or medical school. What a, it's competitive. I, I tell the students, I would tell them in my freshman, you know, or even upper division classes, I'd say, look, you guys all want to be friends. You're at Emory University, which means you're all pretty ambitious. And, uh, most of you are probably going to go to some kind of postgraduate institution. Look around. These are not your friends. They're your competitors. <laughs> they would sort of look around. And say, They're your competitors. Uh, and that's the way it is. It's a competitive world. And, and so they need to realize that. And, and so your, your, your parents can realize that you're, if you're homeschooling your kids, you're going to control more of that technology uh, activity. If you provide them with good conversations in the home, if you prevent them from putting a like into every sentence, then it will show. It will pay off in, again, when your kids leave the home. This is an immediate, uh, an immediate benefit and an immediate cause for, for optimism. I really believe that. Final question, where can all of our listeners find your work? Because in, in addition to your books, which are available at Regnery and wherever uh, good books are sold, uh, you also write for First Things in a number of other places. Right. I've been an editor at First Things since 2014 now. I do a podcast twice a week at, at First Things magazine. You could just type in my last name, Bauerline, B-A-U-E-R-L-E-I-N, which is a, a pretty rare name, uh, and, and all come up. And you can see a lot of writing uh, that, that I've done. You can find The Dumbest Generation, the first book, and then you can find uh, the latest book, which is coming out this month. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm glad to be here.